I'm going to be preaching from the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, if you'd like to open up your Bibles there. Uh, this is an amazing Gospel. Um, we're going to spend a little time in it, uh, opening up chapter 15. But the title for my sermon is Examine Your Lifeline. Examine Your Lifeline. Let me just pray for our time ahead. Father, I, I pray that our message time would be fruitful. As we open up your perfect word, I pray this would be your message to each one that you've drawn here today. It's um, by no mistake that each person is here. It's by your sovereign will and your providence. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, hearts would be open to receiving scripture, maybe hearing saving faith truth for the first time. Lord, this message is lifted up to you as an act of love, obedience, and worship. It's, it's my desire to do that. It's the corporate church's desire to do that. I pray that I would add nothing to what you've given us nor take anything away. We want to get to your word, your perfect truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to open this up with uh, something that I think about as a retired military guy. Um, almost 80 years have passed since World War II, uh, a war that engulfed the entire globe. And uh, there's a story from that incredible time that I want to talk to you a little bit about as we open up the passage. After the Normandy invasion in uh, June of 1944, um, a man by the name of uh, George Patton was given the mission to take his third army and move uh, across France, Belgium, battling uh, Hitler's forces. They were dug in. They didn't want to give up. It was bloody. But the Allies needed to organize and advance over land with the objective being Berlin. Berlin had to fall because that's where Hitler was. His regime had to go. And uh, there would be terrible devastation across Europe, uh, a Europe that had already been suffering for a long time. General Patton was known for his very aggressive leadership. He drove his troops hard. He asked them to move faster than anyone, and uh, he wanted to press the enemy. But his fast-moving army was forced to halt at one point in the days after Normandy because logistics failure. They ran out of fuel. There was uh, an inability to, to get them the gas they needed. There's a movie about General Patton that um, won some awards, um, but in that movie, there's a, there's a tragic scene that talks about what happened in this, and it was just a battalion of American tanks, and they're moving across, uh, you know, the European countryside, and one by one, they start to run out of fuel. Uh, the movie scene is dramatic. You hear tank roaring engines, you hear gunfire, and then all of a sudden, they start to stop in their tracks, so to say, and... Um, one by one, their engines die. They're out of fuel. And when engines die in a tank, at least back then, and it's probably true today, um, other bad things happen. The batteries die. And so they became sitting ducks. And the fighting, instead of being armored fighting, turned into man-on-man, hand-to-hand combat. And the battalion suffered tremendous losses because the Germans in the area were quick to figure out that they could press a tactical advantage. And so it's a terrible scene. American tanks aren't supposed to run out of gas. They're not supposed to have their batteries die. But 
this happened and it was a failure and they lost a fuel lifeline that was necessary for their life and success moving forward in a terrible war zone. So I want to just bring this to the scripture today because as Christians, we live in a terrible war zone. We do. We live in a world that is basically run by an unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We battle our own sin nature. We battle Satan. And the spirit of the age is crazy. We talk a lot about that, and it really is. It's getting worse. And so we're fighting this unholy trinity, and the stakes are eternity. And so we need a lifeline, do we not? We need, we need a lifeline. We need to not be cut off. And so we need a power source, and this is just not just for temporal life, it's for eternity. And so with that idea, let me just start with the text, and this is from the ESV. It's uh, verses 1 through 6, John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit." Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned. All right, these are hard words. These are Christ's words. They're being spoken to his disciples in the last hours of Jesus's earthly ministry before his betrayal by Judas and his arrest. And we know where that leads. It leads to the cross, to a horrific crucifixion. So Jesus had a lot to say to these men in this dramatic time of anticipation. And All of it's been written down for us. Um, John's gospel in particular, chapters 14 to 17, contains what is called the farewell discourse. And it's really Jesus preparing his disciples for what they had ahead in the short run and then what they had to do after his death, his resurrection, and ascension, which was build the church. And so Jesus is trying to bolster them, but he's also trying to Reassure them, let not your hearts be troubled, he told them. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself. These are assurances, but they're not let them off the hook insurances. They were intended to comfort them, but not release them from what he had for them. They were to be the foundation of the church. So what a tough time. Jesus, their teacher, mentor, Lord, and friend, he's telling them, I have to die And it won't be a quick death. It's going to be a torturous death. And so their world is about to be completely upended and permanently changed. And so they're struggling to absorb all of this. But hear this. There can be no salvation without the cross. There can be no Christianity without a crucified Christ. There can be no way to heaven and to a lifeline connection to eternal God without the cross of Jesus Christ. And these men are at the very beginning of their comprehension of all of this. So he's telling them, I have some critical truths and I want you to absorb these. He had a really important mission for them. 
So they're having to accept shocking and fear-filled thoughts of Jesus setting his face to Jerusalem and then through Jerusalem to the cross, to the scornful cross, and they're just wondering, how is this all going to work? What is it going to be like without him? If he's not here, how can we... How can we be staying connected with him? And so Jesus promised these men the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, but he's with them still, and he's staying on message, and he's saying, continue in faith, continue to trust. I'm not going to leave you. I'll be with you. I want you to stay with me and obey, and it's going to be hard. And so we see as we open up chapter 15, it's more, it's sort of uh, finishing out the farewell, farewell discourse. And so Jesus is using a word picture. He's using an analogy here to make a binary claim about life and death, about the human condition. He's basically saying, life and death, you're either connected to me or you're dead. If you're not connected to me, there's no hope. John MacArthur put it this way when he preached it, and I appreciate this. The drama that unfolds in this analogy is simple. There is a vine, there is a vine dresser, and there are two kinds of branches. Branches that bear fruit and are pruned to bear more fruit. Branches that don't bear fruit, cut off, dried, burned. That's simple. It's one or the other. So the branch connected to God represents a path of life. The other, a path of disaster, of pain, of judgment, of death. Physical death, eternal death. So if you're taking notes, I want to show you that this, this six-verse passage contains five essential truths. Five essential truths about your lifeline to God. It's called union with Christ. And there's only one way to have it. It's by saving faith. Saving faith in Christ alone. So what I want you to do is examine your saving faith this morning. Examine your lifeline And here are the five truths. First, Jesus Christ is the true vine. Second, God the Father is the vine dresser. Third, fruitless branches are removed. Four, fruitful branches are pruned. And number five, abiding branches are fruitful branches. This one outlines pretty nicely for those seminary students out there. Um, So let's look at essential truth number one. Jesus is the true vine. Verse one begins with, I am, I am the true vine. This is the last of seven really important I am statements that Jesus makes in the whole of the Gospel of John. And John is the only gospel that has all seven of them in there. These I am statements, the other six are. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am the light of the world, John 8.12. I am the door, John 10.9. I am the good shepherd, 10.11. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, 11.25, and I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14.6. So understanding these important I am proclamations, it moves us deeper in our understanding of Jesus' identity and moreover, his essential role in our salvation. Jesus is the only way. And the, the plan began, as we know, temporarily in the garden. It actually uh, started before the foundation of the earth. But in the garden, we know God the Father, the Holy Trinity, kicked this thing off. And it was in Genesis 3.15, we read this pronouncement, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we know that Jesus 
is the head bruiser and the heel bruiser is Satan. So the great battle between good and evil is, is begun in the garden with the fall. And what we have with Jesus coming as Messiah, the main, the main theme of John is Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And he's come to complete the salvation plan by his life, his death, his resurrection, and that's the penalty he paid for our sins. So I am declarations link him to the Old Testament revelation of God. We Remember Exodus 3, 4, I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. So if there's any question at all about whether or not Jesus was claiming to be God in his walk on earth, he was absolutely claiming to be God. He is God. I am is a name for God. So in verse 1, Jesus, eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, possessing all the attributes of God the Father, articulated throughout inspired scripture, he's telling the disciples, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Well, what's he mean by that? Well, we have to put it in the, con- the right context of the central theme of the promised Messiah. And, and basically, by believing in him, people can have eternal life. So if we put it in that context, and then we, we look at what he's saying about the true vine, we have to say, Jesus is God, and he's saying, I am the true vine. And what he means by that is, I am... The rescue. I'm the savior. I'm what Israel could not be. The vine reference would have meant a, a lot to these disciples. Um, the Old Testament frequently refers to Israel as God's covenant people, but being a vine that God planted, his uh, plan for Israel was that they would be leading into the life of Christ, that they would fail, as we know. They're not the answer, but they were symbolically showing what Jesus is coming now and saying to, saying to them under the new covenant of grace, by faith you can be saved. The disciples were probably thinking about Psalm 80, where in verses 8 and 9, the psalmist says to God, you brought out a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. The whole history of Israel in the whole Testament is precursor to this incredibly important word picture that Jesus is opening with in John chapter 15. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. And they knew how God had brought Israel out of Egypt and planted it in the promised land. They would have been familiar with the Hebrew prophets who likened Israel to a vine or a vineyard. They would know the words of Isaiah and Hosea. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, Isaiah 5.7. Israel was a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit, Hosea 10.1. So the grapevine was a national symbol for Israel. It was a symbol of life. It was so important to them that they actually decorated the, ca- the gates of the Jerusalem temple with, um, with a symbol of a vine. So the disciples knew this. This was hitting home for them. This was, this was powerful to them as, as people of faith who were Jews. And so the disciples are hearing, I am the true vine, and this is profound to them. In fact... One commentator, Kent Hughes, said it this way, all conversation must have stopped at this powerful pronouncement. The force of Jesus' words were, you all know how Israel is pictured as a vine that is meant to produce refreshing fruit. Well, I am the fulfillment of all that symbol suggests. Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. What he's really saying is, I am the true Israel. 
Where Israel failed, Jesus permanently succeeds. He is the true vine. He is the salvation of men, the only salvation of men. And he's saying that he is the embodiment of all that Israel should have been, but couldn't be, of course. Israel didn't, we know, accomplish their mission. They failed to be the kingdom of priests, the holy nation. They chased after idols. They sinned against God. They played church, as Pastor Pete preached on a few weeks ago. Their hearts weren't in it. And so Jesus is saying, I am the true vine. And he's saying that to his closest friends who are gathered around him as he's setting his face to the cross, knowing that it's got to be done that way. That's the only way. So the timing is really important here. Only a short time before Judas runs off and betrays him. In fact, Judas had already left to do his infamous deed. You can read about that in John thirteen thirty. So Judas, the betrayer, did not hear this, I am the true vine. He missed it. He missed this proclamation, which is a sad foreshadowing of Judas's fate as an apostate, someone who looked apart and said all the right things but was never a true follower. The heart connection was not there. The union was not there. And he, Judas, would become a branch cut off and one that would be burned. So Jesus was preparing these 11 men for his crucifixion and all that would follow the miraculous resurrection, his departure for heaven, and how they would be called to build the church. And he wanted his friends to know that he was going to be with them through all of this by their trust and faith. He wasn't going to desert them. So if Jesus is the true vine, now let's look at the function of a vine. What does a vine do? Well, a vine to a grape branch provides sustenance, life, living energy. So Jesus, the spiritual vine, is providing spiritual living sustenance and energy to those who are in union with him. It's, it's a spiritual life reality. You either have it or you don't. And he's telling his beloved disciples that he's going to continue to nourish and sustain them just as the roots and the trunk of a grapevine sustain a grape and, and the branches so that they can develop fruit. So Jesus wanted these men to know he's still with them. And he wants us to know that he is with us if we are in union with him today here in Anchorage, Alaska. There's one way, there's one vine, there's one Jesus Christ, there's one way to be rightly connected to the creator of the universe. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone. So our desire to know and love him, along with the energy to serve him, is going to keep flowing through us as long as we have union with him and we abide. We'll talk more about abide here in the last point, and we'll talk um, deeply about that. And so the second essential truth that I want you to embrace this morning is you think about your own faith, your own salvation, is the Father is the vine dresser. The Father is the vine dresser. Look now at that second part of verse 1. My Father is the vine dresser. So here in this word picture, we have God the Father, who's wholly invested, caretaking. He's able and intentional to do what someone who takes good care of plants can do. Um, the sustaining and the growing and the paying attention. And he's doing this in perfect intertrinitarian knowledge and awareness and unity. And what's he doing? He's discerning healthy branches from unhealthy branches. 
I thought about this. When we get a big windstorm in Alaska and we get those, right? We have trees in our yard and, man, when one of those blows through, there's a million of these little sticks in the backyard, right? And guess what? There's no place for them to go but into the incinerator. They're not going back on the tree, right? So here we have God the Father who's discerning who's healthy and who isn't. And it makes total sense that we would have a vine dresser, right? It makes total sense for best results. Someone's paying attention to that. And so vine branch health is measured in fruit production. Those sticks in my backyard can't produce anything once they're cut away. In verse 2, we see that every branch that does not bear fruit, he does what? He takes away. He cuts it off. Disposes of it. It's hard reality. People get offended when they hear binary language like that. But critical truth number, truth number three is fruitless branches are removed. And you can look down in verse 6 and see the method. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This is judgment language. It's zero sum, as the saying goes. Jesus himself is giving a clear picture of what it looks like to have eternal separation from life-giving connection. And that's endless torment. Other places in the Bible talk about that. That is a picture of hell. If you're not abiding in Christ through faith, it's that straightforward. And so we know Judas didn't hear this, and then he went out and betrayed Christ. And so he is a branch cut off, and so remains the fate of every unbeliever who does not come by faith in an authentic, biting union with Christ relationship. So it's really important that we examine our faith, that we examine our salvation. That's healthy to do that. Not worry about it, but just examine it. Be honest. Too many people claim Christ but are not, in fact, his. The supernatural union with Christ is just not there. It's not there. True conversion does not happen. We know conversion is a sovereign act of God. God reaches out in his providential care. He takes a hard heart. He puts in a soft heart. There's a mark. Of, you can mark it in time and space. It's called regeneration. You're justified by your faith. You're sealed with the Spirit. You're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And then you're being sanctified daily for the rest of your life until God brings you home to glory. So you're either that or you're not that. I would assert that um, there's nothing more disconcerting to me as I read the words of Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So if fruitless branches are removed, what about the ones producing fruit? Which brings us to essential truth number four. We want to be fruitful branches. But guess what? Fruitful branches are pruned. They're pruned. What is pruning? Well, the vine dresser is taking a different approach towards these healthy branches, those ones that are still connected to the tree, so to say. Verse 2 continues, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Well, I'm not a horticulturist. I'm not even good with plants. I pretty much kill everything to include my roses in the backyard. Cynthia takes care of that. But there is pruning, and I know that pruning is done with a sharp instrument, with a sharp knife, right? A knife. And it's done intentionally and with surgical precision. And guess what? Getting cut with a knife implies pain, does it not? Pain. Pain producing purpose, purposeful suffering, if you will. It's really important. Anybody that knows anything about tending vineyards, um, the pruning principle is huge. And I don't want you to miss the principle here. The spiritual principle is this. There is a good and loving purpose in our pruning, so to say, which can be spiritual pruning, which can be painful. We're either, we're either having consequences of our own sin come down on us, or the other possibility is God's just bringing some suffering to refine us so we can bear more fruit. Wow, that's not a health and wealth message, is it? <laughs> At all. No, the doctrine of suffering is really important in the Christian life. The point is to become more like Christ, to be sanctified daily. It's two steps forward, three steps back most of the time, a lot of the time, and then it's a leap forward, and then suddenly when God is ready to take you home, praise Him, you're more like Christ. He wants you holy. He wants you holy, not happy necessarily. And suffering is a part of that. Malcolm Muggeridge in his book... Jesus rediscovered said this about the pruning principle. I'm quoting. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel overimportant and overpleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. And we know uh, James, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 2, says to Christians, this is written to Christians, says what? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Wow, count it joy when I meet trials? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's a picture of sanctification. Lacking in nothing is the goal. And God will use various kinds of trials to help us become more like Christ. And I think that's a good word in the times we're in right now. Things, aren't, things are harder than they were 10 years ago. I'm sure they sure seem to be. All right. One more thing about pruning is that we can't prune ourselves. This isn't a do-it-yourself mission at all. And even if we could, we wouldn't remove what really has to go. Uh, You know, one writer made this point. He said, the truth is, what is noble and attractive in us has to come from the cutting we would have avoided. Sort of like going to the gym. Unless I have a coach, like, pounding on me, I'm going to probably wimp out because I'm not good at self-governing those kind of things, right? And so David in Psalm 119 said this in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. And in verse 71, he said, it is good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Pruning creates a hunger for the truth. Pain in our lives sends us scurrying for help, right? And where do we find help? 
as Christians today? It's in God's Word. We have a closed canon of Scripture. We have everything we need for life and doctrine. We go to the Word. The end of the apostolic era of the first century brought the closed canon of Scripture. We have God revealed in His Word. And we have what we need. And so, let the pruning have you run to the Word. And it's inerrant and sufficient for all of our life and doctrine. So, it's been said that God's hand is never closer than when he prunes the vine. So take heart in that. If you're going through something right now, God has you. It's not a mistake. And God will get you through it if you're indeed connected to him in union with Christ through faith. We'll get to more of that in a second. So how, how do we respond to these four essential truths? Is there some command to follow? Is there some measure of success to consider? Well, let's look at this. Fruitful branches are abiding branches, so let's consider this idea of abiding in Jesus. And then we'll take a look at what good fruit looks like. Jesus said in verses 4 and 5, abide in me and I in you and the branch, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So the word here, the Greek word here is meno, which basically means to remain in, stay with, reside with, stay close to. And these meanings just imply a really close living relationship with Jesus that the disciples, disciples clearly had while they're walking with him before his death on the cross. They were able to just hang out with him. And so now the timing of his encouragement to them to stay with me, it's a little bit confusing. In this moment, he's speaking these words, but they know what's coming. Soon he would be tortured and killed, making it like temporarily impossible for the disciples to stay with him in a physical sense. So what was Jesus talking about here in his command to abide? He's expressing this concept of spiritual union. Our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, makes it supernaturally possible for us to be connected to him through saving faith. It's saving faith. And this is the promise of the new covenant of grace. So the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that I talked about, this is a gift of grace, and it's a critical part of knowing whether you're saved or not. Saving faith is a sovereign work of the triune God. And so acting in perfect unity as Father, Son, and Spirit, we're called to faith, and we respond in faith, and we respond to faith in what? We respond to faith in Christ alone, in his virgin birth, in his miracle life, in his ministry, in his suffering and death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his eternal role now as the coming king that will come back and finish the ark of salvation altogether, as the Bible tells us. That is saving faith. And so we want to think about that. We want to examine, do we have saving faith? You cannot abide in Christ if you don't have saving faith. It's impossible. You're the branch on the ground if you do not have saving faith in Christ alone. If you do have saving faith in Christ alone, you're connected. And guess what? You cannot not abide. Think about that for a second. You can't abide if you're not saved, regenerate, 
But if you are saved and regenerate, you're secure. And you will abide. It might not look pretty. It might be hard. You might be up and down. It might be back and forth. But you're going to make it. You're going to make it to the end because it's a work of God. That should bring great comfort to you. That's what abiding is. Saving faith and then believing that God has got you. And then we pay attention to the Holy Spirit that's in us. We don't pay attention to the world. And we can make choices because we have free will. But God has got us. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Believers depend on our union with him for the grace and strength to obey. And we can find it there. We can find it by being in church together and encouraging one another. We can find it by going to God's word. We can find it in prayer. We can find it in basically understanding what the gospel tells us and and believing it on faith. So we look obediently to his word for that instruction. And then we are able to offer him our deepest adoration and praise because we're connected to him. Christians gratefully know Jesus Christ through his finished atoning work. We know he is the source and sustainer of our lives here on earth and for all of eternity. He is the true vine. So what I want you to hear a little bit more about is what's inauthentic faith. Who, who's not connected to the vine? Well, the Apostle John in his first three epistles penned late in his life, the same, the same writer of the, the Gospel of John, he alluded to what this inauthentic salvation looks like, and he's talking about defected professors of the faith. First John 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that they might be shown that they are not of us. People with real, genuine, authentic, saving faith will remain. They will meno, they will abide. And they won't defect. They won't deny Christ or abandon his truth. Again, you can abide if you're saved. You can not not abide. If, let me say it this way. If you're saved, you will abide, and you won't not abide. You won't be able to abide if you're not saved. It's, it's really that binary. It is that straightforward. Jesus said in John eight thirty one, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So you can't even live, you can't even progress in the Christian life unless you have saving faith. And then there's fruit from saving faith. What's the fruit? What's the fruit? Well, the fruit for the believer is, you can read it in Galatians 5, 22 to 23, it's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. A Spirit-saturated life is going to produce those Fruits of the Spirit, and those fruits of the Spirit are going to translate into holy and edifying works. They're going to bless your fellow believers in the church, and the kingdom of God advances. That's how it works. So our source of life and spiritual fruit is never ourselves. It's always outside of us. It's always our connection to the living God through our faith in Christ Jesus. Abiding is the result of authentic salvation Because we're sealed with the Spirit and we're filled with the Spirit, and that means eternal security. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 to 22 puts it this way, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also, what? Put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as, what? A guarantee. A guarantee. We have an ironclad guarantee if we have saving faith in Christ. 
that should be very, very encouraging as we just kind of look at how hard it is to just navigate the culture and work in secular jobs and um, think about the economy and worry about balloons flying over our country. We're living in some weird times. We really are. I opened up with a war analogy, and we think about war, right? That's all the news is just banging on right now. Jesus underscored this powerful truth in verse 5 of the text today. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. All true branches are going to bear fruit. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 16 to 20, by their fruit, you will know them. You will know them. So those who don't produce good fruit, again, in the analogy, are cut away and burned. And the references to apostates, unbelievers, those who either reject Christ outright or profess to know Christ, but whose relationship to him is insecure, bogus, illegitimate, unreal. God never called them, nor elected them, nor saved them, nor sustains them. And eventually these fruitless branches are identified as not belonging to the vine and are dealt with. Judgment comes, it's over at that point. This is something we've been hitting hard on from this pulpit. I know Jeff has said it, I've said it, others have said it. It really is binary. The fundamental reality of being human is you're one thing or another. You're either saved by God or you're lost. You're either your soul is right with God or it's warring against him. We are either at peace with him or we're separated from him. We're either counted righteous in his sight by faith. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Or we are due his holy wrath. We're either graced with eternal life and fellowship with him or we're headed like Satan and the demons to never-ending punishment. That's what the Bible says. We're either considered in the royal family as a member of the king's family or we're an enemy of the crown. So we want to have saving faith. That is the main point, saving faith. And once regenerate, we can live by God's gracious power. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. So if you look down to the rest of chapter 15, you kind of get a picture of being in, being regenerate. And it says God's going to be glorified in it, verse 8. We can ask for help in prayer, and he will hear us and answer, always in keeping with his will. God is not a coin-operated God. He's a faithful God who does what's right for us. And so we can pray um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will hear us. That's a promise. Um, We're going to want to obey, and we will obey, keeping his commandments, the word of God. And when we do that, that inspires love and it's really transcendent love, verses 10, 12, and 13. And then such love is seen even in the willingness to lay down our lives for one another, just as Jesus laid down his life for us. And then in verses 18 to 25, we're going to see that the world is going to hate us. The world is going to hate us. So that's the picture of being in. The very last verse of John 15, verse 26 brings the narrative back to the time and place. Jesus said these things. We're back into that profound moment. Jesus has yet to go to the cross. He has yet to suffer and die. He's yet to reappear in his resurrection. But it is very interesting that he promises them the Holy Spirit after giving him this last and final I am. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness 
about me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always worked in perfect unity in all things, but most critically in our salvation. We have to see it that way. Father, Son, and Spirit desires a relationship with us, but it comes by faith and faith alone by His grace. There was Godhead unity in the garden to save us. There was unity in all the plans and purposes for the patriarchs. There was unity in the in, in all the dealings with the nation of Israel, there was awesome unity in Christ's voluntary condescension to come down and take on flesh. And there's unity in the church age that's leading to now. So if God has indeed saved you, listen to the Spirit. Examine yourself today. Walk by the Spirit. Choose to do what you know to be right and true. Choose holiness over everything else. One quick quote, and then I'll wrap up and we'll go to the communion table. John MacArthur again talks about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. There's a lot of confusion about this, um, a lot of misunderstanding. We have the Spirit. MacArthur puts it this way, to be filled with the Spirit is is to be under His total domination and control. It requires the death of selfishness and the slaying of self-will. Those are choices that we can make. To be filled with God's Spirit is to be filled with His Word. Just as I said, and as we are filled with His Word, it controls our thinking and action. So, it's pretty wintry out there. It's pretty snowy. We've got a bunch more, right? But spring is coming at some point. I think I can say that, unless the Lord comes first. Um, You know, and when spring comes... Uh, my dear bride put some flowers in the ground. We have some, uh, I guess they call them perennials. And, uh, you know, at the right time, they start popping up. It's amazing. And they're colorful. And they come back. And there's life there, even if it was buried under feet of snow and ice, right? The flowers come back. And we see purple and yellow, and there they are. But I have learned one thing about these perennials. If I'm out there clumsily stomping around and cleaning beds, um, putting mulch in and such, if I accidentally bump one of these and kill it, it doesn't come back. It's gone. And so I get that, I get that training every year. But there's just no possibility of life if you've severed, if you've severed the stem. It's not coming back. What a beautiful symbol of life and future when we think about how God is life and life is in the vine. It's amazing. And so we want to be thinking about this analogy. We want to be examining our lifeline, and we don't want to be fooling ourselves. We don't want to be playing church. We want to be abiding in Him daily. So is Jesus your true vine? Is the Father your vine dresser? Are you bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And then desiring to be obedient and doing good works to bless your fellow Christians in the church? Are you growing more Christ-like under the new covenant of grace? I don't know where everybody is, but maybe God is doing heart surgery on you today, and maybe you're hearing for the first time what this whole idea of saving faith is. I ask you, especially as we go to the communion table, to examine yourself.